This is our second week study in prayer. We're going to look at a parable on prayer. And, and theologically speaking, I, I find prayer to be kind of a curious thing. Because if, if you believe that God is all-knowing, and I believe that, and I hope you believe that, and if you believe that he's sovereign, and I believe that, and I hope you believe that, and if you believe that he cares for you, and I definitely believe that, and I hope you believe that, then why does he need our help arranging his schedule of helping, helping us? Um, what, why do we need to tell him what's going on here uh, in order for him to heal people or grant our requests or that kind of thing? Is it like he's up there in heaven busy with other stuff, and unless you bring it to his attention, he's not going to know that you're sick, or he's not going to know that you're, you're out of work, or that you know, you're struggling in your marriage? You think because he's busy with famines and wars and such, that, and, and all the other whiners, um, that, uh, that he's not going to pay attention to what's going on with, with your life? The Bible says a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without him noticing. And so he's in the details, and he's in the details of your life. So why, why do we even need to bother with this thing? It, it, it would seem almost like, like a waste of time. It's not like he needs my help to rearrange his priorities. Um, and it's not like we saw in the movie clip last week where he gets so many requests from so many people, we just got to keep knocking until he's paying attention. And I think this is one of those times where we project on God the qualities of our own fathers. I know many of you have this experience where if you needed to ask Dad for something, you better choose your time carefully. You want to ask where you got him fully focused, or if you, if you had a moody dad, you don't want to ask on the wrong side of that thing. Uh, and so sometimes you think, well, i got to go to God over and over again to make sure I catch him on a good day. So he'll answer my request. Well, that doesn't match up with what we know about God, does it? It's just, just us projecting our own, dad, our own dad's qualities on, on our heavenly father. So but yet the Bible teaches that we're to pray, and to pray, and to pray, and to pray. So what's this about? And my theory... My theory is that we should pray, and we should pray continually and, and, and persistently because that activity does more for us than it does for God. Now, I think it does something for God. He's a loving father, and he desires intimacy with his children. He desires contact with his children, and I think that's, that's the only thing we give God through prayer is, is fellowship, is contact. Uh, if you've got adult kids like, like Gene and I do now, you recognize now that contact with your parents is optional. Um, and we appreciate that when they're in touch with us, right? If you've got you know, kids who are still at home, you've got that to look forward to. But uh, we're glad when they stay in touch with us. And you know, if it's asking for advice or asking for help or just sometimes, you know, our kids just call just because they hadn't talked in a while and they wanted to talk. And that's a really cool thing. Well, your Heavenly Father loves that no more than or no less than, than your earthly parents do. But even more dramatically, there are changes that are wrought in our own lives when we pray. It changes our perspective. It, sometimes we can't change our circumstances, but we can definitely change our attitude towards, our, towards those circumstances. And I think that's one of the things that prayer really does accomplish. I don't think it moves your request to the top of God's to-do list. I think it can sometimes adjust your perspective and your attitude. Um, we studied the Psalms before, and I'm thinking we ought to do another series on Psalms, especially on the heels of this uh, little mini-series on, on prayer parables. We got two more parables in the parable series, and then we're going to do something new. And maybe we'll go back and do a month on Psalms, because this is David really teaching us how to pray. And you can categorize the Psalms into several different categories. There are Thanksgiving Psalms, there are Psalms of praise. 
It might surprise you to learn that the most common type of psalm comes from a particular genre of psalm. It's the lament, the, the crying out to God psalm. Oh, God, why? And in those psalms, uh, if, if you've studied them much, you know this. David is brutally honest in those psalms, articulating attitudes that don't seem all that religious or even all that nice. Being Sometimes I read those psalms, and it seems like, David, you, you should read them with your fist shaking towards heaven because that's how David seems to be writing. What am I, a worm? And, and he's complaining about God, not treating him good enough, not protecting him enough. Sometimes he's articulating how he would like for God to work revenge on his enemies. And some of those psalms, I read those, and I think, how did those even get in the Bible? And yet, this is David being totally honest and open with his, some of the dark side of his thought life. And where's he taking that? He's taking that to God. I, I, I wonder how much of that stuff David spewed on his family and friends and co-workers. And I wonder if sometimes by taking that stuff to God, he was able to, to keep it between him and God um, instead of uh, you know, letting it be part of his, his, his public life. I don't know about that. The Bible doesn't really record a lot about that. But when we're honest with ourselves and with God and we pour out our hearts to God, we cry out to him for justice. God renews our faith. And if you read to the end of the Lament Psalms, quite often you'll see that happening even before the psalm is over. It's as if David's sitting down at his desk writing out this complaint to God, and by the time he gets to the end, he's, he's writing sentences of praise to God. And so it seems like we can even watch in reading those psalms David's heart change as he's, as he's pouring out his heart to God. Uh, a quick review of last week's uh, study on prayer, because we learned some things then that I think are, are, are pretty valuable anytime we study. We often picture prayer as sort of the oxygen mask that pops down when the airplane's in trouble. Um, but Martin Luther says it's more like the oxygen than the oxygen mask. He says to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. But, but it's not without its problems. As we, as we consider praying, you know, what should we pray? What should we ask for? How should we pray? How do you be sure you're doing it right? Why is it so hard? It's supposed to be this time of joyous and intimate fellowship with our loving Father, and yet for many of us it feels like this religious duty where we've got to check off the box and earn our Jesus points for this week so we can feel like we're spiritual enough. Um, maybe I'm just describing me. I didn't see any nods there. Um, but uh, uh, I, uh, I, I know there have been times where I felt like, all right, in order to be a good Christian, I've got to read my Bible some, I've got to pray some, I've got to do all these things. And if you approach this like a, this, this, this opportunity for fellowship with God like a checklist, in order to, to, to be good enough this week, I think you're missing out on an opportunity. Is God listening? If he's listening, why won't he answer? Or really more accurately, why won't he answer the way I want him to answer? And, and we'll, we'll talk about some of that today. Last week we looked at the passage in Luke 11, um, the first parable on prayer. There are two. Kind of funny to me, Jesus told a lot of parables about money, but two about prayer, which is uh, kind of an interesting thought. Uh, I mentioned this uh, last month when we were going through the money parables, we talked more about money in this church over the last two months than we have in the five and a half years we've been a church. And how did we get there? Uh, we did a series on parables, and, and Jesus talked a lot about money. So last week, we learned a version of the Lord's Prayer, uh, not the same one that we all memorized from Matthew, but a very close approximation of that and uh, uh, a lot of the same basic concepts. Then Jesus told a parable about prayer, and then he explained the parable uh, with an exhortation for us all to pray. Luke repeatedly emphasized 
the importance of prayer in the life and ministry of Jesus. In Luke 5, 16, it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And before every major event in the life and ministry of Jesus, he went off by himself and prayed alone. And these, these uh, scripture references are all from Luke. So according to the Lord's Prayer, more accurately, I think, called the Disciples' Prayer, how should we pray? We should first of all pray to our Father. And recognizing that he is the Father who loves you is really the key to understanding the rest. We should pray about the Father's glory. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. If we start with that, before we go to our needs, I think we'll have the perspective right. And then, of course, we are to pray about our needs, but so often we get that order backwards, don't we? We treat God like, a, like some cosmic Santa Claus, and we just give him a list of things we need him to fix or people we, want him to care, we care about that we want him to heal. And we forget the part about, you know, I'm, I'm working for you here. How can I make your kingdom come? How can I, how can I be a servant in, in your army? We learned three principles last week for prayer. Persistence, confidence, and assistance. The assistance that comes to us is through the Holy Spirit. The persistence is what we're going to hone in on today, and we're going to focus on that a little bit more. Um, I know we got some community Christian school veterans in the room. When I taught at that school, we, uh, we found, I found in the history books that they had little nicknames for a lot of the historical characters. I learned later they're not in all their other history books. Um, and maybe some of you remember William Carey. Anybody remember his little nickname that, that was in the Abeka books? He was a, a 19th century cobbler, a shoemaker in Britain, not very well educated, but he went to India and translated the scriptures. Uh, took him a long time and he served. Anybody, anybody remember it now? He was the father of modern missions, uh, the, those uh, Christian school history books uh, call him. And I think he really was that. And, and he, he had a very impressive career by the end of it, uh, but he started off without a lot of education, with just a goal and a commitment to do it, and he served for years and years in India um, and introduced the scriptures to India. And here's what he said about his own work. I can plod. <laughs> I, I think that's a funny place to, to start and kind of stop. That doesn't seem like high praise. If, if I said of you, yeah, she's a really good plotter, uh, or you said that to me, yeah, that occurred. He can plod. Uh, that, that wouldn't really make you swell with pride, would it? She thinks I can plod. Uh, that's not the kind of compliment that really makes us feel, feel all that. That's like faint praise, I would say. And yet that's what he said about himself. And the scriptures are plain on the value of plodding. Uh, in our crown class, we learned that uh, the biblical way to prosperity is steady plodding, according to Proverbs. And Jesus talked about keeping your hand to the plow, not looking back. Well, the rest of what William Carey said is this, I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. Few people know what may be done until they try and persevere in what they undertake. So Jesus is going to talk about staying, being steadfast and faithful uh, in prayer. And let's go ahead and, and start back with the passage, Luke 18, verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Then he should tell them when. Um, let's look at this in context. And in order to find out when and where and why he was telling them this parable at this time, we need to back up to the chapter before. In, in Luke chapter 17, it's funny, he gets a question from the Pharisees. And then he, after answering the question from the Pharisees, Jesus goes on to teach his disciples about prayer. Let's start with 1720. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. 
Now, this is one place where I feel like we might have a translation error. Um, I think within you is kind of an unfortunate translation in the NIV. I don't think he was saying to the Pharisees that the kingdom of God is within all of you. I think it, a more accurate translation would be the kingdom of God is among you. I think what he was saying is it's here right now. Yeah, I brought it. Um, in fact, he said that other places in Scripture where he, he goes in uh, early in his ministry and he reads the scroll from Isaiah about uh, the, the, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim sight to the blind and set the captives free. And then he put the scroll down and said, it's happening now. You know, this is the fulfillment of, of that, that prophecy. And so I think that's what Jesus was saying is it's not some future event. I came to proclaim the kingdom of God and, and here it is. But then he goes on to describe his second coming in a very familiar passage, and in fact, some kind of a scary, a kind of scary passage of the Bible. Let's see what he says about it. Verse 22, then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you there he is or here he is. Do not go running after them. Verse 24, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Well, that last part's already happened, right? He suffered many things and he was rejected by his generation. Let's go on. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. So Jesus is talking about his return here, his second coming. And that's the context that brings us to the parable. So what are you going to do? While you're waiting for me to come back, well, you need to keep praying. And that's the parable he tells. So how are you going to face this, this future? Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. How would you always pray? Now, don't you have to take some time out to, uh, to do other things? Um, and, and yet, I, I think it's a misconception of the idea that, well, prayer happens when you stop everything else you're doing and you maybe adopt the posture and, and maybe write it down. Some of you have a, a habit of recording your prayers. I would, I would suggest that for Jesus, evidently, it was a more fluid, organic thing. Obviously, he went away sometimes and prayed in a particular place, but there are also times the Bible records where he was right in the middle of something and kind of looked up to heaven to pray. And I think when he did that, maybe it was so other people would recognize that he was praying. But I bet there are plenty of times, there are plenty of times in my life where I'm praying and people watching me would think I was just having a conversation. Or like sometimes my prayer in the middle of a conversation is, God, help me not to sin here. Please help me not to sin in the middle of this conversation. I'm so mad. <laughs> I don't want to sin. Um, and please help me to represent you well. Um, you know, sometimes I'll have that prayer like right in the middle of a, of a conversation where it looks to the person I'm talking to like maybe I'm just having a conversation. And, you know, God's answered that prayer for me. And there have been other times where I've just said, oh, God, I can handle this on my own, and I wish I'd prayed because uh, he would have helped me if I'd have prayed before or in the middle of it. <clears throat> this idea of praying continually, it's, it's all over the scriptures. First um, Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 is one of my favorite passages because it's so easy, it's so simple to understand, um, so it's impossible really to mistake the meaning. Paul says this, be joyful always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, I'm no great theologian, but I know what this verse is about. 
I can understand this one, and in fact, it's impossible for me to mistake its meaning. If it's God's will for me to give thanks in all circumstances, then where should I squeeze in gratitude into my to-do list? Now, I got a busy schedule, and really, according to this, ingratitude's got no place in it. If I'm to be joyful always, when do I get to grumble and complain? And I think, I think the answer is really in the verse. I'm going to be joyful always and give thanks in all circumstances. I think the only way I can really accomplish that is to pray continually. Because don't those feelings of non-joy and ingratitude come over you kind of unbidden? You don't really ask for those, right? You don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be ungrateful today. Or I'm going to spread some, some bitterness wherever I go. Uh, that's, no, that's nobody's plan when they wake up in the morning. But sometimes you get in the middle of your day and you find out, where's this coming from? This is not, I'm not feeling the joy. You know, I'm not feeling gratitude. And, and obviously, if we, again, we look back to the Psalms, David had those days. And what did he do with them? He took them to God. And he expressed the, the most, the deepest, sometimes the most negative stuff in his heart. And he, he, he told it to God, and God met with him. I think this is what the Bible means when it says to take every thought captive. Um, you know, sometimes these thoughts will come to us and we recognize, eh, this isn't healthy, this isn't wholesome, this isn't, this isn't uplifting, this isn't going to help anybody. In fact, this isn't helping me either. It's just hurting me. How do I take it captive? Well, I think we give it to God. Uh, we, take, we, we bring it in line with Scripture and we give it to God. God, I'm feeling this thing. I don't know where it came from, but how about you take it away from me? Um, and I think God will answer that prayer. Um, Ephesians 6.18 says, Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. What's the context of this verse? You remember where it's found? It's after the armor of God passage. And so over and over again, we see the idea of continually praying. And I thought of a word picture during the first service that reminds me of this. A friend of mine used to say that he was the star of the movie that was playing in his own head. Um, and, uh, and I think that's true for a lot of us. I think if we're honest with ourselves, there's this, there's this movie playing in your head, and you're the star, right? And I think the difference between a nice guy and a jerk would be nice people have co-stars, and jerks just have extras. Um, would would that, that make sense? And so if I, if I want to continue the metaphor, I think the idea of praying continually would turn on who's the director. Um, and and I... I, I I can honestly say I've had this situation come where I've been going to an awkward setting and I've prayed on the way and the prayer has been, God, how do you want me to play this? Um, almost like an actor asking the director. And there are plenty of actors who make their own movies and they get to be their own director. But I think if I'm going to pray continually, I need to recognize that God's the director of my movie. I just get to be in it. And so that would be one way of kind of having this attitude of prayer. You know, God... How do you want me to handle this circumstance? I, I, an old friend of mine was teaching about quiet time, and he said, for a serious disciple, you got really two choices. You can pray for guidance in the morning or pray for forgiveness in the evening. But one or the other, if we don't get his help on the way in, we're going to need his help coping on the way out. Let's go back to the parable. Verse two, this is Luke 18, verse 2. Jesus said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men, and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. Now, we tend to hear the word widow and think it's an old woman, but 2,000 years ago in Palestine, not necessarily old. Um, 
women married much younger then than they do now, and husbands died much younger then than they do now. So she could have been quite young, but she would have definitely been vulnerable in that society. Now, Jewish law did a much better job than most of their neighbors of providing for widows and orphans, and yet if the judge won't help her, nobody will. I mean, she's got a his responsibility is to administer justice, and if you can't count on the legal authorities to, to, to stand up for you, then she, she truly is vulnerable. Her only weapon is persistence, and she uses that. Verse 4, for some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, I think it's funny how accurately he assesses his own character, uh, the judge there, yeah, I don't, I don't fear God or care about men. Yeah, but, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. So, totally motivated by self-interest, just stop bugging me. And again, we read this parable and we think, is this what God's like? Is it like the guy in the movie clip uh, last week? All these whiners, the only way I can get them to shut up is to grant their requests. Well, no, this is another parable of contrast, not comparison. Jesus isn't saying that God answers prayers like the unrighteous judge. This is, there's a common phrase in Jewish literature, it's how much more. If, ev- if, if even this unrighteous judge will grant her petition, how much more will your heavenly father, if he lo- you know, who loves you and cares for you and is concerned for you, grant your petition? So what Jesus is saying is persistence works even on this guy. You can be sure it'll work with God, your heavenly father who loves you. And then let's go, we got three more verses where Jesus kind of explains his own parable. Verse six. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Now, you and I are his chosen ones. And a good question to ask, I think, would be, are you praying for God's will or for yours? Because I know there are plenty of people who feel like, wait a second, he's kept putting me off. I've asked him for the same thing over and over again. I still don't have it. T.W. Manson said this, that we are not the pampered darlings of providence, but the corps d'elite in the army of God. See, God does answer prayer. He just doesn't always answer it like we want. I mean, one answer to prayer, our favorite answer is, yes, whatever you say. But that's not, obviously we don't get that all the time, right? Sometimes the answer is just no. And sometimes this can be as frustrating as the no, the answer is not yet. And patience really isn't a strong point of our culture, I've noticed. Um, I... Uh, <laughs> I thought of this in the first service just as I was, I was describing that. Um, for people my age who can remember life before microwaves, it's amusing to be in a setting like the teacher workroom or the teacher uh, lounge at our school where people who are in their 20s are standing in front of the microwave complaining about how long it takes to warm up their lunch. And it's, you know, it's like two or three minutes and how, you know, well, I don't have that kind of time. And so for, it, it's just amusing to people who can remember life before to see us complain, and we all do it, even, I mean, I'll do it. I'll, I'll be shocked at how long it takes to warm up, warm up my lunch and think, you know, what do we do before this? Um, th- there's an old cartoon of a kid kneeling by his bed praying, and it kind of, the caption goes like this. God, my Uncle Bob still doesn't have a job, and my sister still doesn't have a date for the prom, and my grandma's still sick. And I'm tired of praying for my family and not getting any results. And, and that's often how we go to God in prayer. It's like, wait a second, I've asked you for this, and you're not giving it to me. And we treat God as like our, 
like, like we're the puppet master and he's somehow obliged to answer our requests like we expect him to. He's my loving father, which means, of course, he's got more resources than I do, or else why would I bother praying to him in the first place? But it also means he's got more knowledge than I do. He's got a broader perspective than I do. He knows not only what's best for me, but what's best for the kingdom. And you might hear that and say, well, wait a second, what if, what I, what if what's best for me isn't what's best for the kingdom? And I would say that that betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of our place in the kingdom of God. Because what's best for me isn't that I get my way all the time. What's ultimately best for me is to be useful in the kingdom and advance in the kingdom of God. I'm part of his army. He's not part of mine. And so ultimately the best thing I can do is to be a useful tool in the hand of God, not to make sure I get everything arranged so I get my way in as many places as possible. G. Campbell Morgan said it this way, the man who makes prayer a scheme by which occasionally he tries to get something for himself has not learned the deep, profound secret of prayer. Prayer is life passionately wanting, wishing, desiring God's triumph. Later on in the same chapter, Jesus tells the story, or actually not tells the story, he experiences, he meets uh, a blind guy on the side of the road. I think one of the other gospels names him as Bartimaeus, but I don't, I'm not sure Luke records his name. And he gets to demonstrate this, par- this principle of persistence. Um, verse 38, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is walking down the road with the group. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So blind Bartimaeus, he didn't care what was going on, didn't care how the, pe- how the people responded. He desperately cried out to God for help. And that's, it, it's interesting to me that Jesus, that Luke, the writer, included this account of Bartimaeus right after the parable of Jesus on prayer as if to demonstrate how it works. Last verse, uh, Luke 18, 8. I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So God's going to vindicate his saints. He will bring justice and peace to the earth. But there's a word here that's kind of confusing to some of us, quickly. Now, what's that mean? I know for many of you, it doesn't feel that quick. Luke wrote this about 2,000 years ago. So for most of us, that doesn't seem like all that quick. Got three possibilities uh, for explaining what this quickly means here. One is it could just be maybe another time where a better word would have translated it closer to us. Maybe it means suddenly or unexpectedly, where it feels like it's quickly when it comes. Or maybe what it means is just with time, with the passage of time, we gain a broader perspective. How many of you remember coming to church here when Walter wasn't able to sing? I think it's cool that there are so few of those. Um, when we planted this church, our worship pastor uh, had lost his voice. He had a, a, a throat problem. And for about three years, he wasn't able to sing. And I can remember, I know the Straubs cried out to God for deliverance, but I can remember praying, God, what's up here? You know, he, here's a man who has obvious gifts. He has, he's willing to use them for your kingdom. He feels called to, to plant a church, and, and he can't sing. And, uh, you know, when we started this church, we, uh, uh, teenagers did all the singing for us. Uh, and they did a great job. And, you know, maybe as we look back for eternal perspective, you know, maybe so the kids would learn to play. Um, we don't know. I, I can look back and see. I mean, I can't pretend to explain all the unanswered prayers. But as I look back on it, one of the things I see is during that time, Walter became much more to this church than the guy who sings. Uh, his shepherding uh, kind of came to the front. 
because uh, you know, one of his key talents was kind of on the shelf for a while. But I can remember about year or two we're praying for that. It wasn't feeling like it was getting answered quickly, was it? Um, and so those of you who, who kind of walked through that time with us, it was like, God, what's up? And yet, you know, that was several years ago now. And now it seems to me, I didn't feel it as intensely as Walter, kind of like a distant memory. Um, and it seems to me every year that passes like a, sh- like a, a shorter speed bump on his discipleship walk rather than the defining feature of his life. And so uh, I can think of other examples that, here's one from my own life. When Gene and I first got married, um, we both had jobs. Um, some of sometimes the key details help you picture the misery even better. Gina worked at Burger King where she wore a, a, a brown and orange polyester pantsuit to work. Uh, and. Uh, I know you're, some of you are feeling her pain. This was 1982. Uh, she made it look good. Um, and I worked at uh, Holiday Inn as the night auditor. And so I'm 20. She's 18. And uh, 21 and 19, like a month later. And at night, I don't know if you know the job of the night auditor, but he works on everybody else that doesn't work. Um, and so... We're newlyweds, and my wife's getting ready for bed, and I'm getting ready to go to work. And I go work all night, come back home, the one car, it's time for her to get up and get ready for work, and then I go to bed. And we were hating that. We love being newlyweds, we enjoy being married, but I can remember thinking, how long is this going to last where we don't get to, to, to work on the same schedule and, 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 and spend the nights together? It just seemed like an unpleasant or a sad start to our, to our life as newlyweds. Yet six months later, I had a day job. She wasn't working there anymore. And that just seems like such a short, brief moment of our lives. And that was 26 years ago. And so that feels like, you know, we tell that story and laugh about it now. We weren't laughing about it then. I wasn't liking going off to work when my wife was going to bed and we'd only been married a couple weeks. That just didn't feel great to me. Um, and so, and yet now it's like, well, that was a small thing. Relief from that did come quickly uh, in terms of our, our, the longer perspective. One last possibility for what this means, I really think this is the more accurate possibility. Jesus will come quickly and vindicate his, vindicate his saints based on an eternal perspective. This is the next thing on the eternal calendar for Jesus to bring justice to the earth, to vindicate his saints. While we're waiting, it seems a long way off. But when we're enjoying the blessings of eternity, it's going to seem like that was no wait at all. Now, I can't even understand that. My puny power to explain things doesn't extend far enough to explain how, how long eternity is or how, how blessed that will be. But whatever we endure here is going to seem like, like a very small speck in terms of that span. So what's your part? Trust that Jesus will return and that justice ultimately will prevail. And by continuing to pray, you stay sensitive to God's perspective and to his purposes. But take a look at the very end of that verse, kind of a a warning in that verse. When Jesus returns, will he find you faithful in prayer? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for reminding us to pray. Lord, we want to be the people who are faithful in prayer. Um, Lord, help us to stay that way. Help us to resist the temptations to follow the world's patterns. 
Lord, when it's hard, when we struggle, when we just don't understand, Lord, help us to cry out to you and to look to you and depend upon you for answers. Lord, help us to be your people, the kind of people who uh, focus attention on you, the kind of people who draw others to your kingdom. Lord, as we go out from here and live our lives, help us to be interested in the lives of those we face. Lord, help us to be a blessing to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.